coffee house. Yes, my voice is still uh, subpar. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is one of those glorious days uh, where I am granted the privilege of being able to discuss some of the most enjoyable ideas from the most important human being to have ever graced the species with his presence. So this is Nietzsche's first book, Friedrich Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy. It was published in 1872 initially, when he was just 28. Subtitle, Out of the Spirit of Music. I know they changed that at some point, but I can't remember what the other title was. But the point, he says in a letter that we will get to, is to look at science from the perspective of the artist, but to look at art from the perspective of life. So this one, as in uh, with all of Nietzsche's books, is going to be difficult. It's difficult to talk about. And I love how organic this kind of process is. And we're going to have to revisit a number of the books that we've already covered to make sure we grind down on some of these ideas. But as always, we will have a look at the contents of the book. Then we're going to do an analysis. We're talk about the pros and cons of the book. And then we're going to discuss some big picture ideas to wrap it into a grander understanding of the world. So, without further ado, this is The Birth of Tragedy by Friedrich Nietzsche, The Contents. So, it's kind of a scientific study of aesthetics. He makes this distinction between Dionysian and Apollonian art. So, Dionysian is kind of disordered in a general sense, and Apollonian is kind of ordered. And you'll see how he criticizes Socrates later for being ordered in a kind of stultifying way. Dionysian is also kind of musical, whereas Apollonian is visual. And these things are in conflict with each other. One thing he'll talk about, I don't know how to express uh, the glee <laughs> that I have <laughs> talking about this kind of stuff. I'm trying to tamp it down, but uh, it's going to be difficult to stay within the lines, you know, uh, when trying to color this picture. But anyway, so you have these things in conflict with each other, and he'll talk about it later how when you add visuals and words to music, it's a denigration of it. So there are some things, I'm just going to say some phrases <laughs> that I pulled out of it, and we're not going to discuss them at all, okay? We're just going to do that. And then we're going to go to other stuff that we can actually discuss. So he references Lucretius at one point, the poet, and talks about how a poet's work is writing down dreams. And that there is a point where a person can become no longer an artist, but he has become a work of art. Every artist is an imitator of nat nature or gods, and the only acceptable theodicy is the gods live life of men live the life of men okay now moving on from those that i just <laughs> had to throw in there for no reason so music is the will is kind of the idea that he goes with here it doesn't need images or words it's a kind of instant metaphor that hits you directly but art itself as an idea is a construct that makes life livable he goes through this whole process of talking about how there's this realization and this disgust of the absurdity of life that at its center it is absurd so you have this edifice that's built around it that that's what art is it's a construct that makes life livable for people who have that realization, which is what everybody should have at some point, the central absurdity of everything. But you need art to use as something to stand on or hold on to when you're in the abyss of, of the absurdity. So like I said, he criticizes Socrates. Uh, he brings up Sophocles and Euripides as well, cites the moment that di the dying Socrates became the new symbol for Greek youth and how Socrates undermined the Dionysian art form and uh, called for the age of Socratic man to be over. He says the age of Socratic man is over and that men now have to dare to be tragic men. They have to arm themselves for hard battle in this vein. 
It's only from the Greeks that we can learn what such an awakening of tragedy can mean. So the whole arc of this thing is that there was this conflict between the Dionysian art and the Apollonian art, and you have this kind of dialectic that occurs in this conflict, and the result is Greek tragedy, which is a combination of the two. But so importantly, you have this kind of immediate relationship, unmediated relationship with music that you don't have with other forms of art. It doesn't have any help from words or images. It's music is the heart chamber of the world's will. And something that's so, (laughs) it's such an interesting idea that he brings up here is that man without myth is eternally hungry. That's why you have this dissatisfied modern culture. And he called this out 30 years before the 20th century. But he said that nothing would satisfy, that you have this loss of the mythic homeland. But the only value is uh, to the extent that you can stamp something with the mark of the eternal. It's the mark of the eternal that makes something valuable. And that was something that was being taken away. He says there's this decisive secularization. And of course, this is after the French Revolution, and it's in the midst of the Franco-Prussian War, and... So he's seeing all these things happening around him, but uh, he's calling ahead of time the entire 20th century. And it was Greek art and tragedy that were there that to check the destruction of myth. Myth was the thing that is completely necessary for people to be able to function. He calls music and tragic myth Dionysian. So finally, as kind of a wrap-up, Nietzsche, he argues that the tragedy of ancient Greece was the highest form of art due to its mixture of both Apollonian and Dionysian elements into the one seamless whole which allows the spectator to experience the full spectrum of the human condition. Then, in a twist, he writes a letter wherein he trashes this entire book. (laughs) So again, it was written during the Franco-Prussian War. He wrote this letter about 16 years later. This was his first book that was published. He said he just wanted to sit down and write thoughts about Greek civilization and Greek culture. He says the book uses excessive verbiage, way too many words, too much storm and stress, he calls it. He said it was effective among the best people of its time. So people like Richard Wagner apparently were very interested and moved by this book. But now that Nietzsche reads it, he says that it seems um, incredibly unpleasant. And he kind of takes himself to task for multiple reasons, including that he developed this kind of anti-Christian morality. But yeah, he's really harsh on this book when he criticizes it, but it seems like he has this kind of uh, appreciation for the impact that it had when it was released. And the fact that uh, so many important people took an interest in it was at least something that he felt the need to mention in his letter, Destroying His Own Work. (laughs) So on to the analysis. I think there's this uh, excerpt that I wanted to read. Oh, this is from his letter, I think. Uh, But extremely self-confident and thus dispensing with evidence, even distrustful of the relevance of evidence. Like a book for the initiated, like music for those baptized with music, those who are bound together from the start in secret and esoteric aesthetic experiences as a secret sign, recognized among blood relations in artibus, or in the arts is what that means, artibus in the arts. So he's calling into question there his commitment to evidence and suggestions just the book is for those who are already initiated rather than a kind of uh, argument for something. 
or a means to kind of convince readers of something. So the idea density is off the charts. I mean, there's so many interesting things that come up in this, and it feels like a disservice to just call anything interesting, to be honest. But it's difficult to have a full discussion about. Uh, there are branching analyses for each point that he makes that we could go on for hours for each one, so it's difficult to do anything here. So the idea of music as an instant metaphor, it's something that hits you directly, it's the representation of the will of life, and the uh, concomitant denigration of the logos, <laughs> which could be a deliberate anti-Christian idea because so much of Christianity and religions in general are built on the logos. But all of that, everything about music, I mean, it's something that I've been so interested in to the point that I've started looking into producing music just as a means to better understand the rhythms that you go through when you're trying to communicate. But everything around this idea of music, I just, uh, I love and I, I also hate because <laughs> I think and I've thought for so long that uh, words are the necessary means and most important means of communicating with people but he has some kind of a point and we all know that he has some kind of a point when he talks about how vital and meaningful music is and we've talked about it before that there could be some did i bring this up before some it's a theory that i've had for a while is that the the importance or the appeal of music could have something to do with just the most efficient way to for bodied persons to be able to use their bodies so uh the perfect rhythm, you know, in a run or in a heartbeat or something like that, you find it that this is the best possible, most efficient way to be able to use these resources. So if you have that as kind of an underlying structure, then it makes sense that you'd be, you'd find something appealing like music that is about rhythm, that is about the proper timing of things. So anyway, all the ideas about music and its preeminence uh, amongst the arts and vitality as the representation of the most direct connection to the will that we could possibly have. Love it. Beautiful. <laughs> and art as construct. Art as this thing. Like, the most amazing thing about Nietzsche is that he's not making a value determination in the same way that we make value determinations, you know, when it comes to the world. So he's not saying that there's some ethereal, metaphysical importance or meaning about art as a construct or the fact that there's no that we don't have a meaning otherwise or there's a central absurdity to life he's not making this value judgment on that basis he's just saying that we need this thing <laughs> he recognizes how vital it is to have the art as a construct to hold on to when you're when you're dangling over the abyss He's saying we need that. That's something that has to be there whether it confers some kind of absolute or metaphysical meaning or not. And then, of course, he has his shots at Socrates, but again, like, there's a whole thing with Nietzsche where <laughs> his attitude toward things isn't the same as what other people's attitude toward things is. It's not as though Nietzsche is raising and destroying and salting the earth when it comes to Socrates. He has this kind of dual understanding of the way that all these things work as he goes through them. But the ultimate point is that the Greek tragedies embody it all. They have both the Dionysian and the Apollonian understanding of art built into one, and those are the things, the mythology, all the myths that we have lost, especially currently, those are the things that we need. We can't lose those myths. Those are the things that are necessary for us to keep going. 
So when it comes to the quality, you know, I'll read it five more times and I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know, Nietzsche has problems with it, but he has problems with it in the way that is much more complex than somebody else might have problems with it. You know, it's it's much different from, say, a, you know, a science fiction writer or something like that going to their first book and be like, oh, this was stupid or I should have done this better. There's a whole different relationship of Nietzsche to reality and archetype and art and argument and all those things. <laughs> Any other A word I can think of. It's very different from the way that mere mortals have these associations with these things. So anyway, on to the big picture stuff. We're kind of in the midst of trying to understand what art means in a broader sense. What it does, how it manages the cultural decay or advancement. I mean, we have to be at a low point right now with reality TV. I can't tell you how many people I've met in the recent past that have talked about the Real Housewives of X or Y. We have meme compilations. What do they actually do? What do they mean? Instagram, propaganda-based filmmaking, social media, Candy Crush. We have these extreme levels of manipulation of our worst instincts. And there was something I saw recently, there was some uh, thread somewhere that was talking about minimalism in architecture and how things were changed, you know, like benches and molding to this thing and buildings, etc. And how this minimalism where you have these kind of gray boxes and these very plain benches when before they were very ornate and they had different colors and different textures, they evoke different things. And you wonder how much that's a reflection or also contributing to the idea that things are more black and white, that I can think of things in binaries now, where historically all the complexity and things that you'd see in a cathedral or something like that demands you to be more nuanced in your thinking and your understanding. You know, if you see a bench and it's just a, a gray blob, has a couple of lines in it and that's it, versus a bench that has ornate arms and different colors and, and you know, these cascading back designs and all those kinds of things. Do those, when you see that all over the place, does it actually make you more inclined to think in more complex ways? So that's a big question. That's really a big question. But I think we are testing the edges of civilization right now, just like children do, you know, when they have parents and they test the boundaries of what they can and can't do with parents. I think right now as a civilization, the parents are on vacation. <laughs> we were left home. We were told to, you know, here's the money for the pizza. You can have that. You can watch this much TV. Don't have any big parties. You could have a couple of friends over here and there, play some board games. But I think we are testing those limits right now about what civilization is capable of doing because we got to a, a level of comfort and forgot, you know, like children do, they don't know all the work it took to get to that point. We kind of forgot the work that it took to get there. So anyway, there is, I could talk about this, I mean, this single book, uh, maybe a paragraph in, in this book. We could sit down and talk about it for a couple of hours, at least four hours, maybe. But we can't do that. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of a market there is for it. Maybe we could do it in a kind of more interactive way. I'm sure there's some technological means of doing that, where we could literally just have a paragraph and we could sit and talk about it for several hours, bring in references to other things and really air the thing out. That's if we're not in the midst of World War III and a civil war, you know, in the next couple of months. But notwithstanding all those uh, pipe dreams, you know, down the line, hopefully this was worth listening to. This was fun to listen to. And of course, we're going to have a whole lot more Nietzsche <laughs> coming up at some point, And we're going to have a much better understanding of the ideas that he's espousing once we get through more of his books. And then we go back through them and we understand in the broader context of philosophy and history. It's just going to be so much damn fun. I can't even begin <laughs> to express. 
But we're almost done with the five books that we had listed. The one that's uh, kind of lagging behind because I'm making sure to get through every sentence of that damn thing is the the rise of statistical thinking. And I've already started Frankenstein, uh, working on that. I'll have the next five books up. And uh, maybe I'll start putting the five books that are, are pending. Maybe I'll put them in the description or something like that. So it's a lot easier. You don't have to go look up Twitter to be able to figure out what books we're reading. But like I said, we've got those ones. Then we'll be done with this five and some other stuff. We talked about Top Gun, I think, last week. <laughs> But, uh, man, I hope you guys like this stuff. This I love this so much. You have no idea. And I hope uh, you have a good rest of your week. And I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye.